Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So first off, I'd like to start with just being excited for a moment. And I'm excited because it's finally fall. Fall and spring are my favorite seasons and a basically a crisp fall day is pretty much my perfect ideal. Some, you know, nice turquoise blue sky, puffy clouds, a little bit of chill in the air, some beautiful fall foliage. I don't really understand how anyone could not think that that is the platonic ideal of just happiness. <laughs> and yes, obviously, views and opinions are my own, and I actually do understand why other people wouldn't agree with me, but I still think they're wrong. <laughs> and so, yeah, I am very excited it's fall, even though fall is the season where I tend to be the most allergic for some reason. You know, everybody talks about uh, being allergic in the spring and summer, but the fall really gets me. I think it's because of the rain and the, I think I'm allergic to mold and just, I think I'm also probably allergic to dust. So you spend more time indoors with door, with windows closed, but um, I still love it. Spring is a close second. I, I do like spring as well because I like the uh, rebirth of everything and all of the beautiful greens coming back. And, you know, there's that beautiful kind of yellow green that you only get at the beginning of spring on the trees um, before their leaves actually start to come out. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a good uh, second uh, fiddle to fall. All right, enough of just being happy. <laughs> it always seems to work that way that, you know, these days. So let's just, let's enjoy our moment of being happy and excited and looking forward to good weather, at least from my perspective. <sighs> okay, so now we're going to talk about COVID for a moment, but just for a moment, because obviously I do want to talk about the big news, which is that the CDC panel on vaccine boosters announced its decision. And so they announced that for those over 65 and for those in long-term care settings, they should receive a booster for their Pfizer primary shot at least six months after the second dose of their initial vaccination. Now, I'm going to note this again, but this is only for people who had the Pfizer shot. And so if you had Moderna, the Moderna is actually holding up slightly better than the Pfizer, as far as people can tell. So you're probably still perfectly fine. And if you had the J&J, &J, this isn't really going to work for you. Um, but there might be something coming along down the road afterwards. And so people who are 50 to 64 with underlying medical conditions should receive a booster shot after at least six months. People 18 to 49 may receive a booster shot based on their individual benefits and risks. 
And in addition, the CDC director has ordered that people aged 18 to 64 who are at increased exposure and transmission because of occupational or institutional settings may receive a booster based on their individual benefits and risks. And so that was a bit of a controversial decision because that was not what the panel suggested. They suggested only that basically those 65 and older in long-term care and those between 50 and 64 with underlying medical conditions should really be getting it. And that if there were people in the 18 to 49 range who really had underlying medical conditions as well, that they should have access. But For healthy people who don't have underlying conditions and who simply work in occupational or institutional settings, that was not recommended by the panel. And I get why the CDC director decided to do this. I understand the political pressure. I understand the fact that people are scared and people want to make sure that they are, you know, as protected as possible. But I think that it's a mistake. Again, my view and opinion. uh, (laughs) And I don't think that the benefits are really there yet in the data. I do think, however, now that people have really started looking at the data, that for people over 65 and those who have an underlying medical condition, they should most likely get the booster if they've gotten the Pfizer vaccine initially. So remember, this is only for those who initially got Pfizer vaccine. And again, I think that others in the listed groups should get a booster if they're very worried about underlying conditions or in areas of extremely high risk of transmission. Now, I'm still of the opinion that we need to be focusing more on getting first doses to people in other countries where the vaccination rates are in many cases still in the single digits, but I think it makes sense because these will be made available in the U.S. and are not being offered uh, any chance to be packaged for export. So I think that because they're going to be made available, people should avail themselves of them, obviously. So I'm still against boosters in general terms, but since the boosters are going to be available and since there's no way that they can then be transferred to be exported if people don't take them, that people should take them. I still stand by uh, the World Health Organization's understanding of the situation and think that people really need to be looking at places in the world that have very low vaccination rates and how that can, again, if you want to be completely and utterly selfish and want to focus just on your health and safety, the longer those people go without having vaccinations, the more likely it is that novel strains will develop that may very well not be deterred by the vaccines that we have already gotten and will continue to get. And that's just a fact that a lot of people I don't think understand because, you know, science literacy in this country is frankly rather abysmal these days, unfortunately. And so, yeah, Sorry, I spent a little bit of today watching someone on YouTube 
watching anti-vax people and, you know, commenting upon it in a humorous way. But uh, sometimes it just gets to you how um, upsetting this is. And I read an article about Idaho and Idaho is in real trouble. They are just, you know, they have one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country and it shows their uh, hospitals are actually really crumbling at this point. Uh, They are not doing well. And I also read that Alabama, for the first time since they've started recording births and deaths, for the first time ever last year, had the population shrink, which means that more people died in the state than uh, were born to replace them. And that's the first time it's ever happened. And it's absolutely 100% because of COVID. And it's because, again, Alabama is another extremely low vaccination rate state. Um, I thought they were number, I thought they were number 50, but, um, the article I was reading said that Idaho, I think they said that Idaho was number 50, but they're 50 and 49 as far as I remember. I don't know which one is winning in the worst possible terms at the moment, but yeah. And so again, It's frustrating, but um, one of the things we do have to remember, and I think it's going to become more important as uh, time goes on and people who are vaccinated continue to have good outcomes and people who aren't vaccinated continue to have poor outcomes, that we do have to remember that these are our fellow Americans, our fellow humans, and they have been misled by grifters and opportunists and just forces that try to divide us and who I think in some ways I want to say, I want to be optimistic and say that they didn't actually mean to create a world in which so many people think getting a vaccine is political. I don't think they actually meant for that to happen initially because, you know, their bread and butter is these people. And so, you know, it's it's incredibly cynical, but the last thing you want to do is kill your audience. And so I think it just it just got out of control. And I don't know how to make it go back. I don't know how to convince people who are utterly, utterly against the vaccine that it is absolutely safe and effective. People are dying in these states every day and the rest of the people in the state still refuse um, or those who are unvaccinated still refuse to get vaccinated. And it's it's really tough and it's really hard to remember that these are our fellow humans and that they deserve our um, sympathy even though our sympathy might be stretched and fatigued. I think that this country has a lot of problems and I'm, you know, on my, on my best days, I think maybe that could, they could be solved. And on my worst days, I think, you know, put a line through the middle. Everybody goes to one side who's, 
you know, put everybody on one side or the other and just call it a day, make a wall down the middle of the country and just be like, nope, um, or across the middle of the country, maybe, you know, that's on my worst day. And obviously I am not in any way, shape or form advocating for the dissolution of the union. (laughs) I think that we have to ride it out and see what happens, but I sincerely wish that no one was dying right now. I sincerely wish that we had vaccination rates in the high 90s. I wish that my fellow Americans didn't see it as a conspiracy or some sort of uh, potential poison. I mean, oh, it just breaks my heart to read some of the things that people believe about the vaccine, which we know is safe and effective. And so, yeah, it's, it's depressing. Um, I'm not going to lie, but yeah, um, we have talked about COVID for longer than I had meant to. So I'm sorry about that. I'm just feeling very, I'm just feeling very sad today, um, about the issues that are going on and how people have been led astray. And it's just very unfortunate And I really do think that we need to meet those people with compassion as much as we humanly can. Okay, so that is, again, enough for tonight. So let's begin tonight's non-COVID time by talking about a study on rattlesnake tail sounds. Pretty cool, huh? (laughs) It turns out that the rattle of a rattlesnake can create an auditory illusion which can trick our brains into thinking that the snake is closer than it actually is. And so it was believed that rattlesnakes rattle the keratin structure on their tails in a predictable manner, increasing the frequency as the potential threat moves closer. However, they've now found out that there might be a different strategy with a sudden frequency jump used to fool the listener into thinking the snake is closer than in reality. Our data shows that the acoustic display of rattlesnakes, which has been interpreted for decades as a simple acoustic warning signal about the presence of the snake, is in fact a far more intricate interspecies communication signal, senior study author Boris Chugnaud a professor of neurobiology at Karl Franzen University Graz in Austria said in a statement, Chagno, I think it's, I think it's Chagno, uh, noticed this behavior one day when he approached a rattlesnake during a visit to a laboratory. He noted that the frequency of the rattlesnake's rattle increased and then suddenly jumped as he approached, decreasing only when he began to retreat. To explore this further, Chagnot and his team recorded the frequency of the rattle as various test items were brought closer to the snake. These included a human-like torso and a black disc. As threats first approached, the rattle held at a steady rate of 40 hertz, but as the object came closer, the frequency would jump to between 60 and 100 hertz. The rate of increase was in proportion to how fast the object approached, but did not change depending on the size of the object. The team then created a sort of virtual reality grassland, which just, I just am like, oh man, I want to try that out. It sounds so 
ridiculous and wonderful and dorky. And so they then had 11 volunteers run through this virtual reality simulation. And so the researchers asked the volunteers to approach the virtual snake and to let them know when they felt the snake was around 3.3 feet away or a meter, because, you know, everyone else uses the metric system. (laughs) And so the virtual snake increased as the volunteers approached and then suddenly leapt to 70 hertz when the volunteers came within 13 feet. This tricked all 11 volunteers into underestimating their distance to the virtual snake. Chagno thinks that the rattlesnakes use this auditory hack to create, quote, a distance safety margin between them and the approaching would-be predator. Imagine you walk towards the snake. It starts to rattle slowly, increasing the rattle events incrementally. If at a distance of two meters, 6.5 feet, from the snake, the snake suddenly changes this rule and instead of making the two meter sound, it makes the sound like it's only at one meter, then it fooled you, Chagno wrote. And indeed, without a jump in frequency by the virtual snake, volunteers were much more accurate in their assessment of how close they were to the snake. Snakes do not just rattle to advertise their presence, but they evolved an innovative solution, a sonic distance warning device similar to the one included in cars while driving backwards, he said in a statement. Evolution is a random process, and what we might interpret from today's perspective as elegant design is in fact the outcome of thousands of trials of snakes encountering large mammals. The snakes rattling co-evolved with mammalian auditory perception by trial and error, leaving those snakes that were best able to avoid being stepped on. And that's important. A snake never truly wants to bite you. That rattle is a serious warning that neither of you want to encounter the other. And so, yeah, I think it's a very cool. And so a snake doesn't want to bite you. Some snakes have plenty of venom, but a lot of snakes take a lot of time to be able to build that venom back up once they've used it. So it's really easier for them if you stay where you are and they stay where they are. Because if they want to eat you, they'll have been stalking you. Okay, so speaking of sound, it turns out that some birds can learn songs even when they're still in the egg. Behavioral ecologist Diane Columbelli-Negro of Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia, stumbled upon this fact over a decade ago when wiring superb fairy wrens' nests to record their bird song. She found that mother fairy wrens would sing while they were incubating their eggs, even though the sensible thing would be to be quiet in order not to draw the attention of predators. She notes that the discovery was actually a bit of an accident, but it made her question whether or not baby birds could be imprinting sounds or songs even before they're hatched. Scientists have been interested in when individuals develop the ability to perceive distinct sounds for some time. We know that human fetuses learn to recognize their mother's voice, for instance. Superb fairy wrens perfect their songs with parental guidance, so it was thought that they learned sound perception well after hatching. But when they realized that the mothers were intentionally singing, they knew something else was going on notes avian ecologist Sonia Kleindorfer of the University of Vienna. Previous research by Columbelli Negrel 
Kleindorfer and colleagues found that superb fairy wrens learn a vocal password from their mothers in order to help her distinguish her own offspring from those of cuckoo invaders. They also found that unhatched wrens appear to distinguish between songs of their own species and of others, according to research the team published in 2014. And now they report that there are at least four additional types of birds that are able to distinguish sounds specific to their species while still in the egg. The findings are surprising as they go against the perceived common knowledge of the birdsong learning timeline. Vocal learning neuroscientist Wan Chung Liu of Colgate University, who wasn't involved in the new research, notes, We used to think a lot of the learning happened after hatching, but now there seems to be more and more evidence suggesting, even in the embryonic stage, they are listening, he says. And we know they're listening because we found that a drop in the heart rate of the embryo indicates attention to a particular stimulus. The team looked at captive Japanese quail and at little penguins, red-winged fairy wrens, and Darwin's small ground finches. They temporarily removed 109 eggs from nests and measured the heart rates of the embryos before, during, and after exposure to playback of either their own species or another species' birdsong. They also investigated whether 138 individual embryos became habituated to repeated sounds of unfamiliar individuals singing their species' own song-signifying learning. We expected to find learning evidence in the songbirds, but not in the quails and penguins, Columbelli Negrel says. This is because their calls are thought to be genetic and not learned. Instead, they found that all of the embryos showed a slowed heart rate in response to their own species, but also habituation to other sounds. This suggests that they do indeed learn to identify the sounds of their species, specific songs in the egg. And so the researchers suggest that the reason the penguins and quails may share this ability would be because, well, it might be useful for survival. The team hopes to expand the research to other bird species in the future and to further explore the bounds of the question. So, yeah, very interesting. All right, so we're going to take a break for some show promos and some PSAs, and then we're going to come back and talk about a really cool new reptile fossil find. So hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. The Kids Show on W. XOJ is a great show, Saturday mornings, 8 to 9. So please tune in and listen to it. 
Listen to the kids' show. So we'll see you next Saturday. Sundays from 4 to 6. Please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there. You work hard for your wages, so you need to know most workers should receive at least the federal minimum wage and hopefully more. Also, most workers should receive overtime if they work more than 40 hours in seven days. These are the laws for everyone, documented or not. Have questions about your wages? Call the U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. It's free and confidential. Call 1-866-487-9243. That's 1-866-4-US-WAGE. We can help. A message from the U.S. Department of Labor. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia. I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists, combining genres like rock, pop, hip-hop, and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m., with a repeat show on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey, this is Maddie, host of Planet Emo, a show that aims to bring you the latest and greatest in emo music from Massachusetts and beyond. If you ask 10 different people what emo music is, you'll get 10 very different answers. And my goal is to bring in every one of those perspectives. From 80s hardcore to the power pop of today, we'll hear it all. For your dose of early morning feelings, catch Planet Emo from 6 to 7 a.m. every Thursday right here on Valley Free Radio. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And thank you. STDs often have no symptoms, but if left untreated, they can lead to serious health problems, especially for young women. Every year in the U.S., about 24,000 women become infertile from untreated STDs, which means they may never be able to have kids. It's important to get tested regularly. All STDs are treatable. Many are curable. GYT, get yourself tested. Go to GYTnow.org to find a testing center near you. A message from CDC. Okay, we are back and you are once again listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And we are now going to turn slightly. We're still going to be in the animal kingdom. But as I said, we're going to be talking about a really cool fossil. So we've talked about snakes and birds at this point and some COVID, but we're ignoring that. Thank you very much. And so there's actually a specific difference between the Archosauromorpha, uh, which includes crocodiles, avians, and non-avian dinosaurs, 
and that of Lepidosauromorpha, which includes squamates, which are lizards and snakes and other reptiles in that category, and Sphenodontians, which includes tuataras. And so the former has a larger and detailed fossil record, which includes hundreds of species during the Triassic period. The latter, on the other hand, has, quote, an extremely patchy early fossil record comprising only a handful of fragmentary fossils, most of which have uncertain phylogenetic affinities and are confined to Europe. The researchers noted in their paper, which describes a newly imaged three-dimensional reptile skull from the late Triassic epoch of Argentina. So a whole, uh, you know, continent away, they've actually found something now outside of Europe, which is just exciting in and of itself. And it turns out it represents the earliest evolving Lepidosauromorpha based on known data. The fossil, Tetalara alcoberi, is unfortunately only represented by the head. None of the body has survived. But that head, measuring around an inch and a half long, is still the most complete fossil of Lepidosaur evolution yet discovered, according to study co-author Gabriela Sobral, a paleontologist from the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany, who supervised the CAT scanning of the fossil. The images give new insight about how the skulls of modern-day snakes, chameleons, geckos, tuatara, and other related species were derived. Now, by the way, uh, if you don't know, and I only sort of glancingly knew, uh, tuatara are actually found only in New Zealand, and they are the last survivors of an order of reptiles that thrived during the time of the dinosaurs, the Sphenodontia. But unfortunately, all other members of that group had become extinct by around 60 million years ago. So they've basically been on their own for the last 60 million years. But yes, so getting back to the actual skull, the almost perfectly preserved Teletellura skull shows us details of how a very successful group of animals, which includes nearly 11,000 species, including snakes, lizards, and tuataras, originated, said Ricardo Martinez, the study's lead author and a paleontologist at the National Museum, I'm sorry, the National University of San Juan in Argentina. He explains that the Tellura skull shows that the basal forms of this group actually looked more like Tuatara than squamates. And so our modern reptile groups are actually a major deviation from the ancestral form. The fossil is now considered a, quote, stem species. And so that means it's an animal that branched off from a last common ancestor before the lineages that exist today did, and therefore has more in common with that last common ancestor. So T. Alcoberi shows us what lepidosaurs looked like before they split into the two modern groups of the squamates and the Sphenodontia. 
Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there were no squamates or sphenodontia that had evolved before this species lived, but it has more ancient morphology. So for instance, there are other species that developed after the tuatara, but the tuatara is still living and has those more ancient uh, morphologies. Now, for perspective on the time frame of all of this, because it's so hard sometimes to really grasp deep time, the fossil that we're talking about comes from a time period that is over 150 million years before the evolution of the Tyrannosaurus rex. So the dinosaurs lived for so long. I forget what the there's a really famous example of, I think, stegosauruses maybe and T-Rex. Like they lived so far away from each other that uh, we live closer to when T-Rexes were on the earth than stegosauruses do. Don't hold me to that, that it's actually stegosauruses. I'm, I'm pulling that out of a drawer in my brain that might be completely lying to you. <laughs> but there is a really famous um, dinosaur where like the, just the time scales are so immense. It is really hard sometimes to really grasp how deep time is. And so this particular fossil has several neat features. It lacked a snout opening common in archosaurs which are, again, are the crocodilians and the dinosaurs and the birds. Its quadrate bone, which connects the skull to the lower jaw, was oddly shaped, and importantly, the animal had bones mutually exclusive to both squamates and sphenodontia, according to co-author Tiago Simones, an evolutionary biologist at Harvard University. Simones applied a Bayesian analysis to find where on the evolutionary tree T. alcoberi should be placed. This analysis confirmed that T. alcoberi is the most primitive member yet discovered for the reptilian lineage, which is basal to all lizards and snakes. In science, we never seek true answers or proofs because the very basic premises of science prohibit the existence of true answers. By principle, those trees are never correct, and they frequently change over time. But if after future analyses and perhaps new data, the placement of Tetaralura remains the same, it may cement our ideas in this paper as a new theory for the origin of Lepidosaurus, Simonis said in an email to Gizmodo. Now, the fossil was found in Argentina in 2001. And as we can tell, it is a really important clue to the origin of today's small reptiles, obviously excluding crocodilians. And so it reminds us of another thing as well. We are accustomed to accept that the Mesozoic era was an age of gigantic reptiles, enormous proto-mammals, and huge trees, and thus we commonly look for fossils that are visible at human height, just walking. However, the largest part of the ancient ecosystem components was small, as today. There was a universe of fauna sneaking among bigger, clawed, or hoofy paws, said co-author Sebastian Apisteguia, a paleontologist at Maimonides University in Buenos Aires. And so, yeah, 
it's pretty cool that they were able to find this fossil that is so basal to those groups. So yeah, it's very exciting. All right, so we are going to move on and we are going to talk about space. And so it is very exciting. Lots of good things are happening. And so NASA has selected a landing spot for the upcoming rover, uh, Artemis rover mission, the Viper or Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. Some of these uh, <laughs> are just, they're just, the names are just so great. So it will touch down just outside the western edge of Nobel Crater, located near the moon's south pole. And so the rover will have to be pretty well insulated because that area is, for the most part, very dark, very cold and will hopefully feature the preservation of water ice. So the mission is set for 100 days initially and should begin in November of 2023. So the area has so far gone unexplored due to how cold it is there. It's in fact, parts of it are in fact among the coldest places in the solar system. And you might be thinking, wait a second, colder than Pluto? But yes, because of the way that they're situated and because of the tidal locking of the moon and just all of the all of the geometries of everything, some of the areas in that uh, region have not had sunlight on them for millions of years. And so they've literally never had any kind of solar energy. And um, so very cold, um, very, very cold. <laughs> it's basically only been studied from afar at this point. And so evidence suggests that there's a significant amount of water ice within the southern polar regions. NASA hopes to explore this and other resources both on the surface and subsurface of the moon. The data Viper returns will provide lunar scientists around the world with further insight into our moon's cosmic origin, evolution, and history. And it will also help inform future Artemis missions to the moon and beyond by enabling us to better understand the lunar environment in these previously unexplored areas hundreds of thousands of miles away. Thomas Zuberchen, Associate Administrator for Science at NASA Headquarters, said in a statement. Now, the lander is going to be launched aboard a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket and will be delivered to the lunar surface via Astrobiotics Griffin Lander. I have things to say about private space uh, <laughs> exploration, but I'll leave them off for tonight because uh, we only have a little bit of time left and I could uh, complain about the privatization of spaceflight for literally probably days. But anyways, we're going to move swimmingly along. The rover will be eight feet tall and both five feet long and wide. So it's basically going to be a, a five foot by five by five box and then eight feet tall. And it's expected to travel between 10 and 15 miles during the mission, exploring a region some 36 square miles in area. And so I think they said it'll get up to a speedy uh, half mile an hour. Uh, so definitely not going to be the fastest rover out there. 
Now, the four-wheeled rover will feature headlights, the first rover to do this on the moon, and that will help it look at the large amount of small shadowed craters that are found in the landing area. It will also have an advanced suspension system, allowing it to navigate around even the softest regolith. I actually saw a little picture of the, a mock-up of the rover, not the final product, but like a testing model. And they had it, uh, you know, the, the wheels are actually able to move, not just linearly, but they also are able to move on angles. And, um, it was able to get through this like really dense sand. It was pretty cool. So during normal operations, the rover will roll across the surface, according to NASA's Viper info page. Should it encounter extremely fluffy soil, Viper can lift each of its wheels independently, almost like feet, and use them to dig into and sweep along the surface. This gives it a swimming-like motion capable of pulling the rover out of even very soft soils. And so Viper will feature several scientific instruments, the M-SOLO Mass Spectrometer Observing Lunar Operations Instrument, the NERVIS Near-Infrared Volatiles Spectrometer System, the NSS Neutron Spectrometer System, and the Trident Regolith and Ice Drill for Exploring New Terrains Hammer Drill. And so the drill actually has a carbide cutting teeth and it will have flutes to carry drill cuttings to the surface where a rotating brush will sweep the soil samples off of the drill and into a chute to create a neat pile on the surface, which will then allow Viper's other instruments to analyze that uh, material. The Nobile Crater area has many areas that are in perpetual darkness, as we mentioned, but crucially also patches that are exposed to sunlight because, well, the rover will have solar panels that it will use to recharge its systems and to stay warm. And so this actually does make it an ideal spot for the mission. So, so far, there are six distinct sites of scientific interest that are on the menu with obviously additional time for other work because if it continues along the line of other rovers, it will be able to do way more than 100 days worth of work. And so samples will be taken from at least three different sites and from various depths and temperatures. Part of the mission will be to gauge how much water might be available for use for future manned missions to the moon. Viper will be the most capable robot NASA has ever sent to the lunar surface and allow us to explore parts of the moon we've never seen, Sarah Noble, a program scientist for Viper at NASA, said in a statement. The rover will teach us about the origin and distribution of water on the moon and prepare us to harvest resources 240,000 miles from Earth that could be used to safely send astronauts even farther into space, including Mars. So very cool and very exciting. Moon rovers, Mars rovers, rovers are just great. <laughs> As everybody who is a longtime listener will know, I am pro-rover and anti-human spaceflight. 
in, in broad terms, in broad terms, I mean, obviously I understand that we want people to be able to go into space and it's very exciting and it, you know, brings people together. And I understand all of the good arguments for it. I just think that rovers are a better idea because, um, I've talked about this before, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I just think that we need to be much more concerned about fixing the planet we have rather than trying to uh, leave it for another planet. And that's pretty much where my uh, core feelings on this subject are. And that's why I'm sort of pro rover, uh, pro uh, robot. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah. All right. So let us go. Uh, a lot bit farther afield in space and talk about uh, so some, some supernova. Astronomers have solved a mystery of a supernova first noted in 1181. So in August of 1181, astronomers in China and Japan wrote about a bright quote-unquote guest star, which we now know to have been a supernova. Just one of a handful of recorded supernova in the Milky Way that have been visible to the naked eye. It was a bright feature of the night sky for a full six months before it faded away. But in the intervening years, astronomers haven't actually been able to discover what remnant was the source for SN 1181. So SN stands for supernova. Uh, so we'll be talking a lot about a, a lot of SN you know, um, <laughs> and a number. And so now an international team of astronomers thinks that they've pinpointed the source as one of the hottest stars in the galaxy within the PA30 nebula. And this is according to a new paper in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. And so there are two types of really common supernovae, an iron core collapse supernova, that occurs when large stars greater than 10 solar masses, so greater than 10 times the sun, uh, collapses so violently that they cause catastrophic explosions, which are only stopped when temperatures and pressures become so high that the carbon in the star's core begins to fuse. The core's collapse will then temporarily halt, but the process will continue over and over with progressively heavier atomic nuclei, until the fuel runs out and the now iron core collapses into either a black hole or a neutron star, depending on the mass. The other main type are thermonuclear supernovae, where smaller stars up to around eight solar masses gradually cool to become dense cores of ash known as white dwarfs. And so there are other rarer forms of supernova, though or supernovae. I know I keep going back and forth, sorry. One is called an electron capture supernova. One of these was observed by Chinese astronomers around July 4, 19, sorry, uh, 1154. It was not 1954. <laughs> um, it was visible in broad daylight for 23 days and we know now that it formed, that the remnants of that have formed the Crab Nebula. So such supernovae were first described around 40 years ago and happen when a star isn't heavy enough for an iron core supernova. 
but not light enough to prevent some core collapse. Instead, these stars stop the fusion process when their cores are composed of oxygen, neon, and magnesium. Researchers hypothesize that at this point, electrons get pulled in by the neon and magnesium in the core and cause the core to buckle under its own weight, causing a supernova. According to the new research, SN1181 uh, is yet another rare type of supernova. This type is called a type 1AX. These are related to the type 1A category, which we didn't talk about specifically, which is when a supernova is the result of a binary star system, where one of the two stars is a white dwarf. In these cases, the white dwarf steals material from the companion star and eventually becomes massive enough to create a supernova. But in cases such as with SN2012Z, where a white star dwarf only loses half of its mass and leaves behind a remnant zombie star. SN1181 was, until now, the only remaining historical supernova of the last millennium without a certain counterpart, the authors wrote. For years, the candidate was a radio and x-ray pulsar known as 3C58, but a new survey suggests that it is much older than SN1181 and thus isn't a candidate. The new candidate is a disc-like nebula, PA30, which was only discovered in 2013 and surrounds a rare, massive Wolf-Rayet star known as Parker's star. The authors determined that the dust and gas of PA30 is expanding at more than 1,100 kilometers per second, and this suggests that it is around 1,000 years old, making it an excellent candidate for SN1181. The historical reports place the guest star between two Chinese constellations, Chuanxie and Huanggei, or Huanggai. Parker's star fits the position well, said co-author Albert Zilstra of the University of Manchester. That means both the age and location fit with the event of 1181. Previous works on Parker's star and PA30 had suggested that it resulted from the collision and ensuing merger of two white dwarf stars, producing a type 1AX supernova, which is of course in keeping with the new findings. Only around 10% of supernovae are of this type and they are not well understood, said Zilstra. The fact that SN1181 was faint but faded very slowly fits this type. It is the only such event where we can study both the remnant nebula and the merged star and also have a description of the explosion itself. It is nice to be able to solve both a historical and an astronomical mystery. So that is pretty cool. Um, I do have one more space story, but I'm going to save it for next week because I don't want to rush it and we've only got another minute or two. So yeah, It's nice to talk about space sometimes because it's so far away and so interesting that it kind of puts things in perspective of how amazing the universe is and how we sometimes just need to take a deep breath and appreciate that. So this is from the internet, so I don't know if it's actually true. I've read it a couple of places, so I'm hoping that it is true, but... Um, not being Japanese, I don't know for certain, but, um, 
I've always liked the concept of uh, yugen, which is supposed to be the feeling of awe you feel when looking up into the sky and contemplating the universe. And I just, I feel that a lot. And I just think it's really a cool feeling. And it's nice to be able to think about things that are a little bit uh, outside of the realm of the everyday. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.